public figure that's generally used is around 10 billion. How much of that would be the liability of a future Irish state if it was United Ireland? And how much of it might be, at least on a transitional basis, covered by the UK Exchequer going forward? Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our subject is the British subvention to Northern Ireland, a topic which is often mentioned, but maybe not quite so well understood. But clearly it's of enormous importance when one looks at the future public finances of a possible United Ireland. And as such, it's an issue of great concern and interest to people in both parts of the island, but perhaps particularly to people in the South. Very lucky indeed to be joined today by two most distinguished guests. First of all, uh, the author of the piece of Aaron's research, which is the centre, if you like, of this discussion, John Doyle. He's the Professor of International Conflict Resolution and Reconstruction at Dublin City University. He's a member of the Aaron's Steering Committee, and he's also the editor of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is the Journal of the Royal Irish Academy, in which the Aaron's research is being published. And he has written an article entitled, quite strikingly, Why the Subvention Does Not Matter. John Fitzgerald is adjunct professor of economics at Trinity College Dublin. He was for many years research professor at the Economics and Social Research Institute. And he's a member of the advisory group of Aaron's. So you're both most welcome. Maybe, John Doyle, we could start with you. What is the subvention? I suppose, briefly, the subvention is the effectively the public sector deficit for Northern Ireland, the public financial deficit. So it's not the whole economy, it's, it's the public finances part of it. Uh, and that's made up of three broad components. Uh, taxation raised in Northern Ireland, uh, or attributed to Northern Ireland. Um, expenditure spent in Northern Ireland. Some of that fairly obvious, just expenditure on roads, health, education, uh, the sort of things you would expect in public finances. And then thirdly and crucially, a proportion of central UK expenditure that's allocated to Northern Ireland for the purposes of accounting exercises and, and public accounts, which is normal in every country in the world. That includes, in the case of the UK, some very large items of expenditure, we'll come back later. For example, more than a billion sterling in defence expenditure is allocated to Northern Ireland. But very little of that is spent in Northern Ireland. It's simply their share of the overall UK. Uh, so that's the uh, essentially what it's made up by. The public figure that's generally used is around 10 billion, though it varies every year depending on uh, the finances. And I suppose my piece of research was to unpick which bits of those are spent and would be inherited perhaps on day one of United Ireland, which bits are choices we would be unlikely to make in United Ireland. I argue, for example, a billion euro of ex- defence expenditure will be an unlikely decision, though possible, uh, and therefore what might be the starting point. Uh, and so that's essentially what the subvention is. Thank you very much. And you mentioned um, some of the elements that should make it up. Um, what are the really important variables in terms of uh, size uh, when it comes to trying to assess what a future figure might be? So... The biggest single figure uh, within that subvention on the expenditure side is about three and a half billion for pensions. Um, We don't get a great breakdown of this um, in terms of precisely 
what the cost of different sorts of pensions. So it includes collectively the normal state pension that somebody would get regardless of their employment status during their life. But it also would include the public sector pensions, uh, which like uh, the Republic of Ireland, they're not funded in a pension fund, but paid as you go system for previous civil servants, members of the British Army, the Defence Force, um, you know, anyone who is now resident in Northern Ireland who previously worked for the British state, their occupational pension, if unfunded, which almost all of them are unfunded, is also included in that figure. So it's one big single figure, uh, the biggest single part of expenditure uh, within that subvention that's, I suppose, pertinent to discuss as to how much of that would be the liability of a future Irish state, if it was United Ireland, and how much of it might be, at least on a transitional basis, covered by the UK exchequer going forward. Thank you. Um, John Fitzgerald, uh, any sort of general observations on the subvention, on what John Doyle has said? Um, well, I, I, I think on the pensions, his figure is much higher than I would have assessed, um, because what's at issue uh, later on in what he suggests is the UK should take responsibility, ongoing responsibility for some of the pensions. Um, you can make that argument in terms of the old age pensions, um, which are a social insurance based. So people have paid social insurance contributions. But if you multiply the average pension in Northern Ireland by the number of pensioners, you come out with about 2.3 billion, not 3.4 billion. So I think that the number there, I'd knock a billion off. Uh, John is correct on on uh, on uh, defence expenditure. Um, in, in United Ireland, uh, uh, we have a much smaller defence budget on this island, so you'd knock another nine hundred million off um, the the subvention for that. Um, his other numbers, I think he exa- because I'm actually I think the person who has calculated the. Uh, increased revenue from corporation tax in Northern Ireland. I think he has 500 million. I think 350 million would be closer to what's what's there. So um, the the basic principles we agree on, but I would have somewhat different numbers. And then the major issue is how much um, would, would fall to the Irish people living in Ireland and what residual responsibility and payment would the United Kingdom um, take on? Just to um, put this in in some broader context, uh, John Fitzgerald, uh, is it reasonable to talk of a subvention, quote-unquote, from the Irish government to regions of of Ireland and any idea of what the scale of transfer, if you like, is from the National Exchequer, let's say, to the border region? It is normal in countries that you have transfers, that the rich look after the poor. And um, within Ireland, um, the Dublin region and the southwestern region um, pay a lawful lot more in tax than they receive in social, social than transfers, welfare payments. Whereas in the border region, uh, taxes equal to the payments. So that basically Dublin is subventing, uh, Dublin and Cork are subventing the rest of the country to a very considerable extent. So that's normal. And in the United Kingdom, uh, London um, and the southeast of England supports uh, the rest of the, the regions. The biggest transfer, our public expenditure in Northern Ireland is 120% of the UK average. 
um, and the deficit there or the subvention is the highest of any UK region. But there'd be a high uh, deficit or subvention to the northeast of England and Wales, which are the next poorest regions um, in, in the United Kingdom. So that's normal um, that you have internal transfers. Thank you very much. Well, John Doyle, to get into the meat of your article, why the subvention does not matter. Uh, and John Fitzgerald uh, and you have both already hinted at a couple of the, the main issues which you, you highlight. But perhaps you might give me a, a sort of an overall um, sense of, of what your argument is. Yeah, so I've picked the uh, slightly provocative title of why the subvention does not matter to, I suppose, get away from the rabbit in the headlight focus on it. Um, Northern Ireland did not always run a deficit. Um, admittedly, very different economies now to 100 years ago. But Northern Ireland was the richest part of the island, the most industrialised part at the time of partition. And in the archaic language of the time, they paid an imperial contribution to London up to the 1930s uh, because there was very modest public expenditure uh, in those days. Uh, and Belfast was an industrial uh, powerhouse, even in the context of other parts of the United Kingdom. Um, but once that slipped into the decline through the 1930s, it never recovered. And the anticipated, I suppose, peace dividend after the peace process hasn't really materialised either. And the economy remains in a very weak state in Northern Ireland. And I suppose for me, it's trying to pare back the subvention to those pieces which would be inherited by United Ireland. And myself and John agree that that would be a substantial figure, whatever way you calculate it. But in some ways, the bigger figures will be about public choices and about the state of the economy. Uh, if the economy in Northern Ireland managed to improve its productivity, uh, its wealth creation, then the underlying uh, deficit in the Northern Ireland economy would be much more modest. Um, and if some aspects of that expenditure uh, went up, we decided to drastically increase welfare payments in Northern Ireland, then that would drastically add to the subvention figure uh, that we have already. So there's much bigger issues in some ways to discuss about the future economy of an, of an all-Ireland economy, uh, both the underlying economic performance, why it's been so weak for so long, and other choices. So that, so that was my backdrop, Rory, in terms of why I, I picked this figure. But I think whatever way you look at it, the all else being held equal, which of course, easy to say in economics, but never is true in reality. But if we just hold it for the sake of argument that nothing else changed, the deficit that the Irish government would have to take on board on day one, if we didn't make other decisions, is highly unlikely to be £10 billion sterling or, or anything close to it. There are elements within there, uh, and we both agree on defence, uh, that wouldn't transfer over, and therefore we simply wouldn't engage in that expenditure. The UK would continue to pay for Trident and would just distribute that money to its other regions. One we, we may disagree on, or at least depending on the context, is about 1.6 billion of the current subvention relates to debt payments. Uh, this is the public, public debt uh, that the UK, that's again evened out across the regions on a per capita basis. In the case of the Scottish referendum, the Scottish government agreed that they would take on a pro rata share of the UK debt. And there are a few, take that as the precedent, you would say, so would Ireland. Uh, but going back historically, once the Boundary Commission report was accepted, the Free State uh, was absolved of any responsibility for its share of UK debt. Um, so that precedent would bring you in the opposite example. This legally is the responsibility of the UK government. So the people who owe this debt look to London to repay them. 
but of course, diplomats, uh, your future uh, sort of colleagues in foreign and foreign affairs will ultimately be the people who will negotiate this with the UK Treasury if referenda were passed. And I think it's a bit different to Scotland because Scotland does not have a debt rating. Scotland need to establish a new sovereign state with debt and with a debt rating. Ireland has a, a good debt rating, notwithstanding uh, two recent economic sort of shocks to the system. Um, and the proportion of the debt that we take over from the UK is not likely to be considered to be a walk away from public debt by international bankers, in my view. So for me, this is something on the table to be negotiated. Ireland may take on some share of that debt if, for example, the British government agreed to take on all of the pensions responsibility as an easier way to manage these finances. But it's not an absolute. If, if the negotiations go disastrously um, and talks break down on no basis of agreement, then this debt is not the legal responsibility of a future Irish government um, and they could walk away from it. So they have some leverage on issues like that. So that's why I think you've got to get down into the detail of the subvention to see which parts of it matter and which parts of it don't. And even on pensions, I think probably the key difference between myself and John's figures is the occupational pensions that are buried within the figure, which they don't give any public breakdown of. Um, so the Treasury simply states that within the subvention, just, I think 3.4 billion relates to pensions. Um, but that would include not just the state pension, but occupational pensions that you would anticipate um, being covered. I think it's probably least likely that a future British government would ask a future Irish government to undertake the pension payments or former members of the British Army um, in order, or indeed former UK, mainstream UK civil servants. So I think within those, it would you'd start probably breaking down those figures into smaller chunks. Um, so, but those are the big ones, probably pensions, debt, um, defence, uh, exactly how much tax is underestimated. Uh, finally, with me, John alluded to underestimating how to calculate precisely the tax uh, generated in Northern Ireland. If you live and work only in Northern Ireland, that's relatively straightforward, um, it, like you calculate for anybody else. But if you're Tesco, you just pay one tax bill to the UK exchequer. You probably pay it from your London office. But obviously, some of it was generated in your shops in Northern Ireland. Uh, and that's quite tricky to calculate. And John has been the person who's brought that to public attention. And I think the difference is probably the, the, the years in which we looked at uh, for that figure. So it's not calculating VAT, corporation tax, capital gains tax. At the moment, this is only possible to be done through estimates. And it makes, at least on the margins, a difference of some hundred million as to how much tax is raised in Northern Ireland. And therefore, as it's underestimated, everyone accepts it's underestimated, that increases the subvention. Thank you. Maybe just if you wouldn't mind, you 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 gave a figure for for pensions, or rather the figure which the um, British government, the Treasury, cites for pensions. If the subvention is broadly speaking um, ten billion pounds sterling, what kind of percentages do the different items that you mentioned uh, each take up? Yes. So pensions takes up about a third of the whole subvention. Um, so by far the biggest uh, chunk. Um, the public UK public debt, about 16%. Um, defence expenditure, about 11% uh, of the deficit. There has been some mistakes, and John has been very clear on this in his. Um, there's accounting uh, adjustments. There looks like quite a big figure when you look at it first. It's about 3 billion. 
Uh, and some people have happily written that off, thinking that suddenly found another big hole. Uh, but most of that, over two billion, actually is an accounting exercise that's in both income and expenditure, and therefore is irrelevant from the point of view of um, subvention. But there is about eight hundred million that the Treasury, unfortunately, don't give a further breakdown of. So I don't exclude it because I've no idea what it is. It could be entirely pertinent to United Ireland or it could be entirely irrelevant. It's simply not possible to say from the public figures, even though it makes up 8% of the potential deficit. But it's pensions, debt, defence, um, cost of the foreign office to some extent, a smaller, maybe about 5%. Those are the, the big ones that probably would be both policy decisions and negotiations um, if referenda were to pass on creating United Ireland. Thank you very much. Uh, John Fitzgerald, maybe we might just go through some of those um, one by one. First of all, pensions. Um, And this is also a point I should add that Alan Barrett, I I forgot to mention Alan earlier, Alan Barrett, the present director of the SRI, um, has written a a short comment uh, on John Doyle's uh, piece, which you can find also in the uh, journal Irish Studies and International Affairs, in which Alan certainly is a bit more cautious about the possible benefit uh, to be gained to an Irish state uh, in regard to uh, a writing off, if you like, of or transfer of pension obligations. But John, first of all, on, on pensions, um, how do you um, see that? Well, I think there is an argument for old age pensions um, based on national insurance, that if somebody has worked in Britain for 30 years and returns to Ireland, they, will, they are being paid their pension for those 30 years they worked in Britain. So that in leaving the United Kingdom, you could argue that there is a residual obligation to pay pensions based on the contributions. Now, I think the UK government in negotiations would argue with a certain degree of validity um, that, uh, that uh, the social insurance contributions, which w- would have... Uh, contributed to it, to paid for that pension would have come from the people of Northern Ireland. So I think it will be a matter for negotiation on that. I think on balance, the British government would probably say no. And um, I think you've got to take it together with the issue of the national debt interest. Now, on the national debt interest, when Ireland signed the treaty in December 1921, Ireland accepted a share of the national debt, a British national debt. And there was basically very little argument about that. What happened was in 1925, Ireland sold the option on redrawing the border with Northern Ireland. And it was a non-existent option. Ireland said, um, we won't look for a redrawing of the border and we won't look for um, our PR in Northern Ireland, and we won't look for abolishing the B specials, which Winston Churchill indicated he was favourable to doing, um, in return for the write-off of the debt. But as well as the write-off of the debt in December, the, I think was it the 6th, 19, or December the 5th, 1925, the agreement was signed at the House of Commons late that night um, to write off the debt. But there was a subsequent agreement in March the following year where Ireland accepted responsibility for historic liabilities, damage done during 1916 and pensions. Um, So um, that's the Irish history. And in Scotland, the the agreement was there. um, Scotland would accept a share of the debt. And pretty well every breakup, if you go back to West Virginia, leaving Virginia in the 1850s or 60s, 
West Virginia took a share of the Virginia debt. Um, when the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up, the debt was shared out. In the case of the Russian Empire, they just defaulted. In the case of the breakup of the Soviet Union, which was the most interesting in the Almaty Agreement of uh, 1991, they shared out, basically it was more assets uh, than liabilities, like the nuclear uh, weapons were shared out um, and Ukraine said, we don't want it. And in return, the Ukraine got some Russian embassies around the world. So the, uh, Czechoslovakia, the same. So this has been, and in the Brexit agreement, the UK accepted its share of the debt with a bad grace. Um, so I think that it is unlikely that you would be able to do a deal with the British on a breakup of the United Kingdom where uh, Northern Ireland would get away scot-free without paying either the pensions or the debt. Um, personally, I'd go for the pensions because it's a bigger number. But either way, you're going to be left with a very significant residual um, subvention because I cannot see the UK. And if you think of the negotiations, the negotiations will begin once there are referenda north and south saying we want unification. Um, the Irish government would be a very weak negotiating position at that stage, having decided you're leaving um, the terms uh, because you're not going to default on debt. Um, so, but that is for the negotiations. So I think that there's, there's likely to be a substantial residual um, uh, subvention, just how much will be subject to negotiation. So just in the end, yeah, I mean, sorry, John, yes. The, no, I would agree with that. I mean, um, and I think those pensions and debt will clearly be on the table at the same time in any post-referenda negotiations. Pensions also brings in a, an added complication. I mean, the figures are big, so you might do, do live with complications. Um, but for example, if based on the current uh, practice where I mean, lots of people in the Republic of Ireland have lived and worked in the UK and their pensions arrive effortlessly almost. It's a really efficient part of the two states working together. They'll generally do it to the pensioner's advantage and it's it's easy. Um, but if somebody in Dundalk is receiving their pension having lived in London all their life effortlessly and a former police officer in uh, 10 miles up the road doesn't get their pension because the UK has left uh, them high and dry after a negotiation in Dublin. I think you know the political tensions around that, I think, would be unlikely. And if that police officer moved to Dundalk, would they then get their pension uh, in, in those cases? So just, and I think it's highly unlikely the UK would stop paying pensions to anyone who left their own jurisdiction. So there is complications around pension and lots of precedents uh, for some sort of transitional measures there. And from the point of view of the Treasury, it's also one, given we're all uh, mortal, that bill runs out eventually. Um, so on day one, you save some money, but at the end of year two, you're saving more. And it goes, so it's, whereas if the UK government agreed, well, we'll give you five billion a year as a you know, historical gesture towards building peace on the island. Very hard to end that if you've been paying it for a number of years, because suddenly it becomes a major decision five years down the road. Where if you agree to pay something that will inevitably re return to zero, it's easier to make sure you don't replace it with something else. So I think pensions, I mean, it's definitely diplomacy, not economics will determine uh, the outcome of it. But, but there is room to believe that a deal can be struck between pensions and debt with those two issues being discussed together. So, yeah, just and just to clarify, if you take pensions and interest payments together, 
uh, you're talking of about five billion. Is that right? Yeah, those two together make up half the subvention, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then just a couple of other sort of points. Uh, you mentioned earlier the the question of uh, the sharing out of Soviet embassies, and in fact, in my previous in a previous job, uh, there was an ongoing dispute for many years between Ukraine and Russia over the ownership of the Russian embassy and um, former Soviet embassy here in, 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 in Dublin. But first of all, the question of assets, um, I mean, is that a significant, an Irish share in, in UK assets if we took on debt? Is that a significant issue or not? And then secondly, I suppose when it comes down to sort of so-called non-identifiable expenditure um, or, you know, expenditure allocated to Northern Ireland on a population basis, Obviously, on defence, I think you're both in agreement. I think the conventional assumption would be that the UK spends, what, four times as much as the Republic um, on a, a sort of you know per capita basis. You've also, I suppose, a share of development aid, um, EU contributions, um, which are rising, of course, and a few other items. But I suppose those will kind of even out. But um, maybe you might just comment briefly on, on the question, first of all, of of assets, and secondly, just out of curiosity, the other elements of central expenditure other than defence. Yeah, I would think, I mean, if it's accepted in principle as part of negotiations that Ireland would accept a share of liabilities, then certainly Department of Finance officials will add the rider and the share of Northern Ireland's share of UK assets outside the territory of Northern Ireland. Um, and therefore, we're entitled to two percent of the British Library and two percent of Westminster's value. Um, you know, no one's going to move those assets. The Soviet Union, as I understand it, was apart from a few trade-off issues, embassies or missiles, it was largely a standstill arrangement. Um, where you sort of, if it was sitting in the territory at midnight, you got to keep it, and nobody really got out the asset register to calculate the precise sum that Kyrgyzstan was entitled to vis-a-vis -vis Estonia. Um, so, I mean, it, there was a large degree of pragmatism rather than close accounting involved. But it, the principle that assets and liabilities uh, were shared was at least agreed in principle, even if it didn't have too much uh, impact in, in reality in many of those cases, because little, little or nothing moved. But it would probably impact on the share of any, if Ireland agreed to take on a share of debt in principle, then the fine figure of what you'd actually sign off in the end would be influenced by asset share out as well. I, I think it would be confined largely to financial assets. Um, like, uh, would we take one of the royal palaces Balmoral? Would we take a Falkland Island or St. Helena? Um, you get into uh, a, 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 a share of the M6 motorway. You, you don't go down that route. So, and with Scotland, they didn't get into, or they, they, they already had a royal palace um, in Scotland. So that wasn't an issue. So I think don't complicate things. I think it's the debt net of financial assets, um, which could be, there was an issue in Scotland with the Bank of England. So uh, it would be up for grabs, but um, you're still looking at a substantial the 1.6 billion, and where you share out the assets, it could well turn out to be slightly different from that. John, in the presentation you and Edgar Morganroth made to the Oireachtas towards the end of last year, you included some very interesting calculations on what you thought the impact would be if um, public sector wages and social welfare payments were quickly 
um, levelled up um, as between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And maybe you might say a bit about that and, and potential implications for the the subvention slash expenditure income gap. I think it's interesting to look at German unification. At German unification, they made the decision they're going to equal up the welfare rates, pay rates and so on. Um, and uh, you can imagine if you had a united Ireland and uh, welfare rates in Northern Ireland were two thirds of what they are in the Republic and the price level would converge. Um, and public sector pay, payment pay in Northern Ireland is about two thirds of what it is in the Republic. People would get pretty cross, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whether you voted for United Ireland or not. I don't think it would be sustainable uh, for a significant period. And that was the German view to maintain a completely lower standard for people in Northern Ireland than the Republic of United Ireland. If you now you could even down and cut pay rates by a, 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 a third in the Republic and cut welfare rates by a third. I don't see that happening either. So if you uh, 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 raise rates in the North, the bill becomes very large. Um, it, 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 before taking off anything for pensions, it, the, trend, the subvention would then become 14 billion sterling or almost 16 billion in euro, if you took off the pensions, you're down to twelve to to, uh, to around thirteen billion euros. So that's a very big um, cost which would have to be paid, and reflects the fact that productivity in Northern Ireland is extremely low. It's very low relative to the rest of the United Kingdom, and certainly very low rest to, relative to Ireland. So that if they were to maintain the standard of living. Um, uh, uh, keep the standard, uh, bring the standard of living for those on lowest incomes up to what it is in the Republic, it'll be very expensive. Yeah, John, you, John Doyle, you mentioned earlier the importance of, of policy decisions uh, by uh, a government in a United Ireland. And obviously uh, those decisions about public sector wages and, and social welfare would be extremely um, significant. Um, are there any other sort of key policy issues that you, you think could materially uh, affect the um, the gap one way or another? Yeah, I mean, one, it's not all Northern focused, uh, of course. I mean, one of the things dominating the domestic political agenda uh, in Ireland, obviously, a lot of weeks is launch a care and the, you know, the, the high level, allegedly consensual political view that will move towards an NHS uh, health system um, and the challenges of doing even the first steps of that. Uh, I think for middle ground voters in Northern Ireland, they'd like some uh, reassurance about um, even if the um, there are many holes in the NHS these days, as anyone who has relatives living in the UK and Northern Ireland's uh, waiting lists are 100 times longer than England's, not pro rata, just in terms of actual people. So the NHS in Northern Ireland has many problems, but the principle that you don't pay when you go to the doctor is very deeply felt. And I think um, people have talked about middle ground voters, but I suspect for many SDLP voters, those sort of issues would fear. So the cost of, if you like, subvention, but also to do with public decisions we'd make in the South. Would we bring in a National Health Service as let it set out in this Launch Care report, not only for our own sake, but also in part because that would harmonise up to at least a model in Northern Ireland, while hopefully also not harmonising up to the waiting lists they have in Northern Ireland, which pro rata are far worse. So that's probably one example of something that's, you know, Southern focused, but again, is a public policy choice 
as to what you would do. You'd have to have some sort of unified health system on this issue, entirely devolved it down, uh, assuming an institution remained in Belfast. But I suppose for me, it's those are the, the cost side. You've also got to look, I think, at the potential income sides that would attack the subvention from the opposite angle. I think just, uh, John mentioned about the incredibly low productivity in Northern Ireland by UK standards as well as compared to the South. Um, the latest figures I was looking at suggest that 27% of the working population are on some sort of benefit. Um, so whether that's because of low wages or disability or because they're unemployed, or you know, that's an incredibly large proportion. Um, I mean, focus on the size of the public sector, but the fact that the private sector, the wages are so low that often they need to be subsidized by the state just to give people a living income. There's no inherent reason why that's the Northern Ireland economy is so poor in that regard. It is a very marginal part of the UK economy. The UK is, even by European standards, where capital cities do dominate, it's quite centralised. Um, so if you took some basic, as well as drivers of the Southern economy, I mean, foreign direct investment, that level of investment, absolutely central to economic modernisation, uh, to to well-paid jobs, not just the tax paid by the companies, but the provision of well-paid jobs and the spin-off for those, almost non-existent in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, really the numbers barely uh, in most years hit net zero. So inwards, you know, newly announced jobs are in many years entirely offset by people closing down. And tourism um, at a level of about one-seventh of the Republic of Ireland. You know, so even though people might come from all over the world to visit Killarney, Dublin, Galway, uh, even Donegal, a tiny, tiny proportion of them make the effort having come to the island of Ireland to cross the border. Uh, so the tourism spend uh, really is minuscule. So there are, you know, beyond an entire fixing of the economy, there are things where are more short to medium term in their scale. Uh, I mean, in the context of the political certainty that in Ireland would bring, there's no real reason to believe the foreign direct investment in Northern Ireland with suitable labour um, policies and skills development would not be at average levels, um, that tourism could not rise to average levels on the island of Ireland. And I think some of that would not simply be displacement of a factory from Leakslip to Ballymena, but actually would attract new investments that the congested um, economic hub of Dublin at the moment are not attractive to many uh, inward investments because people are looking at the traffic housing problems. We could see that even in terms of the context of Brexit. I think there was no doubt that Ireland's failure to capture some of the European institutions um, was in part at least, if not in major part, down to Dublin not looking like an attractive place to move a large number of staff in a single go and try and find housing, schools and appropriate transport links for them. So I think there's economic upsides. Um, and the, the, the challenge, and that's why I wrote this article, was to say those in some ways are the more important economic debates. It's what will be the cost of a healthcare and welfare system in Northern Ireland? You know, what can we, how could we economic model some of the issues around tourism, FDI, the perhaps impact of lessening congestion in Dublin to give us some positive economic news that would offset some in, inevitable costs of absorbing Northern Ireland as it currently sits. Well, thank you very much, John. Uh, that's really fascinating. Now, I don't think we've time to enter into a, a, a debate about 
future economic development policy. I'm sure it's a matter we'll come back to and which Aaron's will deal with comprehensively. But uh, but John Fitzgerald, maybe I'll give the last word on this to you. Um, t- two questions. What kind of boost to Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Ireland's economic performance, would, if you like, narrow the gap between North as it stands now and and South? You know, to what extent would there need to be uh, an improvement in performance? Well, we know there has to be improvement, but but how much? And then secondly, any kind of closing comments on the question of economic uh, development or anything to add to what John said? All right, there's extensive economic research which shows that the major problem for Northern Ireland uh, in productivity is because of its very poor educational system and the very low educational attainment of the population. There's a paper by a book by Vanny Barua, the leading academic economist in Northern Ireland. There's a paper relatively recently by Julius Siegschlag, Uh, of the SRI, and there's a paper I have in the Journal of Statistical Society, all of which show that the low productivity is primarily due to the fact of the very low educational attainment. And it's why foreign direct investment won't go to Northern Ireland. If you look at foreign direct investment in the Republic, it employs highly skilled people whom they find in the Republic. In the North, Northern Ireland has the lowest educational attainment in the United Kingdom of any region, and Ireland is among the highest. Uh, it would be higher than everywhere other than London. Um, so it is fixing the educational system in Northern Ireland. It is the grammar school, secondary uh, school break, uh, where you discriminate at the age of 11, and that is a disaster. The book by Vanny Baru on this is really important. Um, the problem is, if tomorrow they integrated the uh, grammar and secondary schools, there'd be war within Northern Ireland. The middle classes who all get into grammar school and all go on to university will will be really upset. If you did that today, in 30 years time, you'd see the benefits. Because the problem is kids have got to go through the educational (laughs) system beginning at 11. Before they're productive, having been to university, you're looking at the late 20s. So you're looking at 20 years before. And that's what we did in the 80s. We, we invested in education and we saw the, uh, uh, the free education came in 67. You see the benefits in, 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 in the last 20, 30 years. So for Northern Ireland, I'm much more pessimistic. Than, and the thing that should really make a big difference is change the education attainment of the population, long term, the education system. And uh, the other way of doing it more quickly is to bring back all the graduates from Northern Ireland who are living in Britain and persuade them Northern Ireland is a great place to work. If you could do that, that would make some difference more rapidly and make foreign direct investment more possible. Well, thank you very much, John. Yes, in fact, a couple of articles um, published uh, under the Aaron's banner uh, have already addressed to some extent uh, the question of educational under under attainment, not just as an economic factor, but as a sort of social factor as 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 well. So, look, thank you both very much indeed um, for a really fascinating and very useful conversation. And it's clear, not just that this is a very important question, but that the, there are many moving parts, if you if you like. A final observation from me is simply that, of course, while in one way a negotiation between the British and the Irish governments might have to await a referendum or two referendums in favour of United Ireland, uh, and equally while policy decisions uh, on, you know, levelling up wages and welfare might also await implementation after a referendum. I suppose voters on both sides of the island, on both parts of the island, 
would like answers to these questions uh, before they vote. So that's a, a further, if you like, political diplomatic challenge which we're going to have to face or we may have to face in, in due course. But look, thank you both very much indeed and good afternoon to you. Aaron's joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.